The Holistic Counseling Podcast is part of the practice of the Practice Network, a network of podcasts seeking to help you market and grow your business and yourself. To hear other podcasts like Behind the Bite, Full of Shift, and Impact Driven Leader, go to www.practiceofthepractice.com forward slash network. Welcome to the Holistic Counseling Podcast, where you discover diverse wellness modalities, advice on growing your integrative practice, and grow confidence in being your unique self. I'm your host, Chris McDonald. I'm so glad you're here for the journey. Welcome to today's episode of the Holistic Counseling Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDonald. I hope you're doing well today. We're coming off the holiday from Thanksgiving this week as I record this today and of course diving straight into the holiday season which can be challenging with so much more on our plates and I just want to send you that reminder as a therapist to take care of you and find those healthy ways to unwind. I know one way I decompress is through movement and breath through daily yoga which helps me stay connected to my body, helps me release stress. And today's guest understands the importance of embodiment and treatment, and that's Rachel Lewis Marlowe. She's here today to, to share her body-based program called Embodied Recovery for Eating Disorders. Rachel Lewis Marlowe is a somatically integrative psychotherapist, duly licensed as a licensed professional counselor, and a massage and bodywork therapist. She's also certified as an advanced practitioner in sensory motor psychotherapy, has advanced training and 30 plus years of experience in diverse somatic therapies. She is co-founder of the Embodied Recovery Institute, which provides training in a trauma-informed, relationally oriented, I think I, I can't say that too fast, relationally oriented and somatically integrated model for eating disorders and treatment. In her private practice, Rachel specializes in working with people recovering from trauma, eating disorders, and dissociative disorders. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you share a little bit more about yourself and your work? Um, I'm not sure what more to add. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I did kind of share a lot about your yeah, background. Yeah. I, I think that um, you know, maybe what I would just add is that I've been weaving the mind and body together um, feels like for most of my life. And um, I think it's an evolving practice. And um, I feel really honored to be able to, to meet with people who are on a recovery or an embodiment journey or a, you know, a growth and healing journey. And it's just a real honor that our paths meet and that I get to accompany them for a part of their journey in a way that brings them into maybe a more collaborative relationship with their body's innate capacity for healing. Absolutely. And I, I found it interesting that you're a massage therapist in addition to a licensed mental health therapist. Mm -hmm. How do you think that's helped you as you became a mental health therapist? Has this like changed your perspective on things or give you a different perspective? Um, I think it very much has given me a different perspective. Um, or maybe it was the different perspective that brought me to body work first. Yeah. And then, or I don't know, it was a very circuitous route. But what brought me into my graduate degree in counseling was that I was working with bodies and people in relationship with their bodies and realizing that I could facilitate change um, and support change, but it was often temporary. 
um, in response to how my my body was helping to resource or co-regulate theirs through touch and really had to dive into not just um, to how they were in their bodies. And that was a lot about how they were in the world and their, their relationship with themselves as well as their physical surroundings. And so I also was really aware of how to facilitate change through a somatic to somatic dialogue and different principles of facilitating change. And I wanted to understand the, the correlate in how to facilitate change in a cognitive to cognitive dialogue or an emotion to emotion dialogue or, or kind of crossing those. What is it to go from cognition to body or emotion to cognition or you know, sort of these different kinds of, of dialogues that we can have with different ways that we're organized human experience. Yeah, I know on the video on your website, you talk about the sensory, sensory motor psychotherapy mm-hmm. training. Mm-hmm. So I guess, was that a turning point for you? That was a, a, a weaving. That yeah. was a place where I got language. I got, I got, you. I got cognition and accurate language to describe what I had been experiencing all my life. Yeah. And it was a way of of stitching what they call stitching okay. your your bottom up and top down processing. And can you just share what that means for those who may not be to aware? stitch it? Yeah, it, it would be how do we take um, maybe a a new experience that we might be having in our in our bodies? Let's say when we have a felt sense of safety, maybe for the first time, and we can feel that ripple through through our bodies we can feel energy either you know discharging through heat we can maybe feel trembling maybe we feel emotion that comes up but how do we allow that new felt sense experience to build cognition how do we allow that to um, to make meaning from that present moment new somatic experience to build belief about who we are and what the world is is like for us to be in um, versus kind of more of a top-down process where we just sort of look at cognitive distortions or we do fact-checking and we see that, you know, this thought doesn't really add up with the evidence, but we don't necessarily have a, a felt sense of that being true. And so this way of stitching, of kind of, of linking our felt sense experience, our emotional experience, and our cognitive meaning-making is the how we do that. Did that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So why do you think the somatic approach is more helpful in the treatment of eating disorders? Well, I guess I would hesitate to say that it's more helpful. I think or is it a different it, way? I think it's a missing piece of it because... Um, and I think it's an essential missing piece. Like it's, a, it's a really essential um, because um, well, I was just listening to the, to the podcast with Jennifer Franklin. And one of the things that she, she articulated is that most of the information that is going from the body, between the body and the brain, from the gut to the brain is coming from the body up. It's not going from top down. 
And so we learn, we know about who we are and what the world is, offers us long before we have language. Those foundations are there. And if we do not um, provide people with experiences to have a new somatic organization through new somatic experiences, right? Then what we're asking people to do is just constantly swim against the foundational current of, of what their body is telling their brain. And that requires a, a, a source of, of will power and fuel that's not sustainable. And so that's why we have so much sort of relapse and recidivism in higher levels of care is because we can get people to maybe challenge the eating disorder voice, but we don't ever help them really listen to the eating disorder voice as an expression of what the body is telling us about our nervous system, about our sensory processing system, about the way we've had to adapt to, to stay connected with available attachment figures, navigating those conditions of attachment, which is something we do in our bodies. So we have to give them that, that those experiences and help them help the body have a conversation in its native languages of five sense perception, internal sensation, and movement. Did that answer your question? Yes. Um, and can you bring your microphone closer? Because I think yeah. you faded out a little bit that last. Yeah. So I was trying to listen very hard. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. It's okay. We'll take a second. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so tell me what, what is embodied recovery for eating disorders? Well, it is a, it is a, a, a weaving together of many different theoretical maps and therapeutic maps to help us understand how eating disorder behaviors are an expression of neurological dysregulation and what is impacting our, our body's capacity for co-regulation and, and self-regulation. Um, so it's, it's a way, simply put, it's a way of assessing the underlying somatic foundation for eating disorder behaviors and eating disorder thoughts um, so that we can build interventions that speak directly to the body in its own language and shift those foundations. Um, so we, we look at movement patterns. We look at birth history. We have um, four different principles, basically, that that the body plays a much larger role than just looking at the genetics or resourcing it through nutrition. And we have to examine, you know, what is the birth history, the prenatal history um, that impacts our sensory processing system and our attachment system. We look at um, the eating disorder, that recovery is a function of how fully we can embody our body's um, attachment capacity or the ways in which we attach and the ways in which we defend. 
and through our sensory systems. And that um, behaviors are not a common in the body. They are not motivated from what we think or feel about our bodies, but that eating disorder behaviors are motivated um, by how our body is feeling. And that we can resource the body in many different ways in addition to food. And sometimes we have to give the body nourishment through our sensory systems and through our relational system before it has the capacity to handle the very complex activity of, of eating, of feeding, ingesting, digesting, and eliminating. So I guess what are some of the interventions that would be based in this program? Is it, I know you mentioned movement patterns mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what else is there? Well, so there are a lot of different ways that we might work um, or well, I guess one thing that we would say is that it's, this is not a specific technique. Okay. It is a weaving of techniques and it's a way of understanding the importance of expanding the, the multidisciplinary treatment team to include occupational therapists, body workers, movement, mindful movement providers, um, that we want to increase embodiment through a variety of different ways based on what's going on with this person individually. So it's, it's complex and nuanced. And so we might do things like person, we might say, let's, let's work with using maybe a weighted lap pad or doing something that might increase proprioception, which is, is the way in which we know where we are in space through compression of joints and deep muscle. And we might use proprioceptive input prior to eating to help regulate the nervous system so that you know, the vagus nerve is neurocepting more, more safety in, in its environment in its internal and external environment. And therefore, the nervous system is supporting digestion. Digestion function is, is going to shut down, right? There's nothing in the body that's going to want to effectively digest food. So for some people, we might be using weighted products. For other people, we might be doing something that engages maybe smell, or um, we also might, do something that works with um, sound, like the Safe and Sound Protocol, which um, was developed by Stephen Porges, and that helps to adjust the setting of the, the ventral vagal nerve so that we have a larger window of tolerance, we have more resilience and a larger capacity to support digestion. And I hadn't thought about eating disorders and trauma and how trauma can affect digestion. I had, I guess I hadn't made that link. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, when the body is, when the default setting of the body is that it needs to be prepared to disconnect from its environment because there's something dangerous there, right? Like it needs to fight or it needs to flee. That is not a situation when the body is going to put any energy into thinking about, well, what do I want to eat or how do I prepare it or how do I actually digest it? You know, 
the body doesn't secrete digestive enzymes when it's running away from a bear. And if we think of trauma as the sort of the, the um, kind of chronic footprint of fear in the body, right, and our nervous system is running based in a, a fearful setting, then yeah, there's not going to be bottom-up support for, for what we might call normative eating. I know you mentioned the word embodiment a lot. So can you share what is your definition of that? Yeah, thank you. We kind of came up with this working definition of embodiment as being the intersection of awareness and body, right? So kind of the intersection of consciousness and, and our physicality. And so it is, it's based on sort of these two different kinds of awareness. One is the awareness of our bodies. So we build mindful awareness of body sensation, um, of our, our interoception, our proprioception, our vestibular functioning. But then it's also awareness of our world through our bodies so that the seat of our awareness can be expanded. So I may be able to, like one of the exercises we do with people to help them get a felt sense of this is to say, look at an object where the seat of your awareness is in your eyes. And you will know things about that object based on that. But if you place the seat of your awareness now into your fingertips and you touch that object, you will know something else about it. Right? So you're shifting your seat of awareness. And we can do that with you know, there's sort of infinite options or opportunities to, to sit within our bodies. You know, what is it to know our bodies or know the world, look out into the world when our muscles are tense, right? Or to hear somebody say, if you're, we squeeze all of our muscles tight and we cross our legs and we hear somebody say, um, oh, you know, all of your feelings are welcome here. Well, I'm going to hear that really differently <laughs> than if my, my muscles are relaxed and I have the support of the chair underneath me and I the support behind me. And when I hear someone say, all of your feelings are welcome here. It's going to sound really different. It does. And it feels very open when you say that too. It's like, ah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And this really speaks to how somebody can believe something to be true for somebody else, but not for themselves. Mm -hmm. Because when that cognition is incongruent with their somatic organization, it does it. The words don't make sense. Literally, they don't, they're not congruent with the internal sensations, right? They don't make sense. They right. can see outside them. Oh, it makes sense because I can see it for you, but I can't feel it for me. Yeah. Hmm. So that's part of what we're working with is how do we help people expand their vocabulary of, of movement and of embodiment. We don't want someone to always be wide open to things, right? There are sometimes we want people to be like, 
you know, braced and hold and say no to something and reject it. But we want them to be able to have choice and be able to turn that off when they, when there's something. Not be closed off to everything. Right. Right. And to be able to know the difference between protecting and being protected and being safe because digestion and bottom-up support for eating really only works when we are in a situation of safety. And safety means that we can connect to something that is resonant, that is nourishing. Whereas protected means that we can separate from something that is hurtful or harmful. Hmm. And a lot of times people will settle for protection. They will say, well, I feel safe when actually what they're describing is being protected. And they'll just try and focus on the separating from something harmful, separating from rejection, separating from physical harm, separating from judgment. But that doesn't help them connect. It's a different set of 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 somatic skills and somatic experiences that go with connecting to something. Does that, does that go along with the relationally oriented or is that a different part? Okay. Yes. 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 So we really are looking at, you know, what are the conditions that have been placed on relationship, right? Is it something that's like, well, I can, I can connect with people and I can be welcomed as long as I'm, I don't get angry. Or as long as I, you know, don't ask too much, or as long as I am really helpful or conditions, conditions, which that impacts how much of myself, my capacity do I embody? Are there places within myself that I separate from in order to not be separated from you? Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know you mentioned that you wanted to talk about the role of the provider's embodiment in eating disorders, recovery, and mental health, too. Mm, yeah. So tell me about that. Well, I think this is, is essential. And oftentimes, we, when we present this work, one of the first questions providers will say is, well, what do I do for my clients? You know, what, you know, what skills do I teach my clients? And we are often having to slow people down and say, the first the last and everything in between that you do is you show up in your own embodied self. Love it. Right? Because what we're working on is building the capacity for co-regulation. And we cannot ask our clients to go someplace that we aren't willing to go. Yeah, totally agree. That's so powerful, isn't it? It is. Because I think you're right. I think people go into a lot of these trainings like, oh, show me the techniques and mm -hmm. what do I do and intervention, yay. But Mm -hmm. it starts with you, doesn't it? It does. And that's, that's it's hard, it's, it's hard work. And we, and I will say like, we talk about sort of three levels of somatic providers. There's like the somatically aware that understands this is important, but isn't really about facilitating that 
that somatic experience. They know that it's important and they know how to refer to somebody and include somebody, right? And we need those people on the team because not everybody can do this work. No. And we need people who can monitor vital signs, (laughs) you know, and, and, you know, get kind of information about meal plans. That's a different process. It's an important one, you know, and then we have, you know, people who maybe are more somatically oriented where they know how to facilitate it for their clients, but it's still kind of a top-down approach. They're, they're mostly using cognitive cues to facilitate that. And then there's the integrated, somatically integrated provider that's using their own somatic organization in an intentional and, and nuanced way to have these corrective energy-to-energy, breath-to-breath, movement-to-movement conversations. And what's involved with the training for therapists for the embodied recovery for eating disorders? So we we are actually now just enhancing this training um, to be sort of a three-tiered training. Um, The first tier is a very introductory training, talking, it introduces to the models, to the to the, to the different sort of therapeutic and theoretic threads that we weave together. And it, um, so it gives this whole theoretical outline and the principles of embodied recovery through an introduction. We have an online module for that. And then we also are going to be starting to offer it in person as well, hopefully next summer. Um, after that, we have a, a, a tier two, which is more about clinical applications. And so it's through experiential trainings that people will get a deeper dive into the somatic organization of attachment. Um, we're going to be offering classes in sensory processing and autism and eating disorders, um, building blocks of movement. Um, and so there are a variety of different trainings that will be offered Next year, starting next year, we have one that's ongoing. They'll be finishing the beginning of the year. And then eventually we'll be doing a third tier, which is really about proficiency and facilitating skills. And we have a um, two uh, group curriculum that we'll be teaching there as well as individual practitioner uh, skills. So it, it, it's quite a lengthy process and it involves you know, involves people's own experiences with embodiment and what their practices are, what their attachment strategies are. So there's a lot of self-study as well as how do you work with clients. So what have you found are the barriers to embodiment? Well, there are a number. It can start at conception, right? Depending upon wow. the 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 conditions of of the conception. Was it consensual? Was it not? Um was it a wanted child? And so there's there's that. It can be prenatal um, distress in the the um, birth mother's environment. Are they in a war zone? What's the amount of cortisol running through the birth mother's um, bloodstream? Injury, illness, physical trauma, but also attachment injuries after birth, right? in the birth process and after birth whether that is um, any kind of neglect or, or rejection, bullying in school. Um, but it can also happen from attachment injuries that are more community-based, 
when you are in a marginalized community and your attachment figure may be um, maybe your faith community or maybe it is your your institutional marginalization, you know, institutions of, of racism or um, gender discrimination. All of these things can impact our, our embodiment of how we embody our own physical being and then how do we embody spaces. Um, so issues of, of marginalization, uh, gender dysphoria, all of these things can impact our, our embodiment. And that is something you talk about in your training. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because okay. I could see how it could be very difficult for some clients to get to that space of full embodiment. Um, I don't know if how many people ever get to full embodiment all the time. You know? Right. I mean, because, or maybe we should say we are always fully embodied. It's just what are we embodying? Are we embodying True. fear? Are we embodying conditions of worth? Or do we fade in and out of embodiment? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and there are there are situations where it makes sense for us to disembody, you know, of course. because it's, it is, you know, it isn't a safe place to be. And so we kind of leave. The question is, can we come back again? That's the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there enough safety for us to return? So I guess with this training, is there strategies to help clients who dissociate? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Because I've seen that more and more with trauma clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, the first thing that we, we explore is, are you dissociated as a provider? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it comes back to us again. It does. It does. Because if we're asking someone to come into the room and Truth. into the moment, and we aren't there, or we are running a script about, am I doing this right? You know, how is insurance going to pay for this? How do I write my note? You know, oh my God, you know, how do I, is, is, does this, when do I get to eat? When do I get to eat? <laughs> does this fit with the treatment goals? You know, am I doing a good job? You know, our own conditions of worth, our own conditions of, of that we have to perform, achieve in order to have worth in our field, right? All of that comes into how we show up in the room. And half the time with dissociation, what's happening is we jump into cognition because people can be cognitive and be completely dissociated from their body, but they can hold a conversation and manipulate words in a way that makes it sound like we're making progress but they may not even be in the room yet. Energetically, they are somewhere else at us some other time. And unfortunately in therapy, sometimes therapists, we're not always there. We are, yeah. We're, I mean, we're trying to, you know, back to back, we've got 45 minutes to do something. It's like we're working with people who have, haven't been in their body in 50 years and somehow yes. we're supposed to do something in 45 minutes. Do it now. 
Yeah, it, does, exactly. it sounds a little silly when we put it that way, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in terms of dissociation, mm-hmm. a lot of times the first thing is, can we help people perceive and orient towards something benevolent? Can we help them build the capacity to recognize and connect with benevolence? And I often think about the quote that Mr. Rogers said about his mother, always, always look for the helpers in any situation, no matter how bad it is. If you can't find the safety, you have nowhere to go. And sometimes it's relative safety. If I'm sliding down the bank of, you know, of a ravine, I'm going to grab hold of something. It may be of a poison ivy vine, but it's safer than cracking my head on the rocks below. True. But if I can't, you know, and then, then do I have what I need to recover from the poison ivy? Right. Yeah. So I guess, is it looking for some kind of resource in their life mm-hmm. or in the moment? I think it's in the, I mean, there, there is that resource in the in their life, but that's not going to necessarily impact their somatic organization and that bottom up support for belief that I can connect. There's, you know, that they're, I'm lovable, that I'm savable, that I have worth. That comes from in the moment, can the muscles around their ears soften enough to hear the prosody of my voice and that my ner- their nervous system can register that there's something out there that is sometimes available that is benevolent. Yeah. And that's what we're building. We have to build that capacity first. Okay. Does that make sense? That makes sense. So what is a holistic strategy or is there other ways that you use to embody yourself? Oh, I do a lot of, and sometimes it's just um, checking in with my breath, seeing if I can feel my feet. You know, even as I'm doing simple things like washing the dishes or, um, you know, sitting at a stoplight, you know, I kind of like, oh, wait, can I feel the chair beneath me? Or am I holding myself up? Right. So I do that kind of as a practice all day long is, am I, am I aware of my breathing? Am I partnering with my breath and my body? And do I trust it to hold me up? Or am I you know, forcing it to do something. So I certainly meditate. I do Qigong. I oh, love Qigong. Isn't it lovely? Yeah. yeah. So there's, there, there, I think it's, it's a practice. It's a way of being, right? How, do I take time to, especially now in, in the world that we live in now, to get my eyes away from a computer screen and feel the muscles that, move my eyes and let them find a nice neutral setting so that the muscles around my ears and my jaw and my neck can also relax. 
And I never thought about the muscles in my eyes or my ears. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's really tuning in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So what's a takeaway you could share today that could help listeners who might just be starting their holistic journey? Well, I think maybe it's that there's no one path. Yeah. And that therapy and therapeutic are different. That you know, anything can be therapeutic if it helps bring you into uh, a more embodied relationship with yourself and your world and gives you more options, right? I mm-hmm. think recovery is an additive process. And so there's no one way to do it. You, you, and there's no, um, and, and what works for you is going to change over time. That's true too. Mm-hmm. And I just got to say uh, that you have a very lovely, soothing voice. <laughs> I think it's helpful just listening to you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank so what's you. the best way for listeners to find you and learn more about you? Well, the Embodied Recovery uh, Institute has a website. It's uh, www.embodiedrecovery.org. And um, as I said, we're going to be doing some updates, hopefully, in the next couple months to explain nice. more of the those um, additional course offerings. But Great. it's a good place to get to get a sense of what we're about. Thank you so much for coming on the Holistic Counseling Podcast, Rachel. Oh, thank you so much. I really And we'll be putting it. all that in the show notes as well so people can find you through there. Great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you so much to my listeners for continuing to support the podcast. Are you looking for a supportive, engaging, holistic community? Come join my Facebook group, the Holistic Counseling and Self-Care Group, where you will gain support, connection, and more resources on adding holistic practices, both professionally and personally. Just remember to tap the plus button to subscribe on this podcast and be sure to rate and review wherever you get it. This is Chris McDonald saying each one of you much light and love. Until next time, take care. Thank you for listening and supporting the Holistic Counseling Podcast. If you are loving this podcast, please share with your colleagues so we can continue to grow our holistic community. Also, are you ready to take the next step to create an integrative counseling practice? I invite you to sign up for my free nine-part email course, Becoming a Holistic Counselor. In this course, you'll explore different holistic strategies, how to develop your skills as a holistic counselor, and how to manifest your dream practice. Go to www.holisticcounselingpodcast.com, scroll down and enter your name and email address today. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.